Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, if you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here. And I have been working my way through a series on the seven deadly sins. We're calling them virtues and vice because each deadly sin has on the flip side a number of virtues that, that are balanced against one another and vying for dominance in our hearts. And so they're represented by two fruits, obviously one very attractive and delicious, the other one, grotesque and decayed. And we want our hearts in our relationship with God, our very lives, to really reflect more of the fruit on the left than the fruit on the right. This morning, we've come to one on the topic of greed. And earlier, when I preached the first message on pride, you may recall that C.S. Lewis, who I quoted in that message, said that pride is very easy to see in other people, and we hate it, but it's almost impossible to see in ourselves. I think that's very true. But I think greed comes in second when that's concerned. I think greed is one of those things which lies along a gradient. It's not that clear that there's greedy people and not greedy people. I think greed is a kind of universal experience, and we all fall somewhere. And as long as there's someone greeter than me, I feel like, all right, I'm, you know, obviously I'm not perfect, but there it is. And so I'm hoping this morning, because when I say these things, it's because God has been beating me up for a while. When you write a sermon, you get wailed on for a period of time by the Holy Spirit. And then you've got to stand in front of other people and talk about it. And so he's been working on my heart, and I was, I was actually shocked because I'm a pastor. I, first of all, don't have that much, but what I have, I'm not supposed to be greedy about it. God is exp- he's exposing greed in my life, in my heart, and I have to, I have to reconcile with that because that's the one trait I really thought of all the seven, I'm going to skate clean. I, there's no way greed even touches me. I don't even like money, do I? I have zero relationship with money. I'm so careless with it. And yet, even me, man, I'm like, I have greed. <laughs> I got to watch out. I'll never forget in 1987, going with some of my college friends to watch a movie called Wall Street. Anybody see this movie? Not the new one with Shia LaBeouf. Terrible. But the original. The one that I think literally shaped a generation of people. And I'm not kidding when I say it. This movie is cited by some of my friends as that thing which motivated a change in direction in their life. After this movie, a good number of my friends changed majors. They would no longer be artists or writers or historians or philosophers or even doctors or lawyers. They were going to be business people because only the chumps made a salary Business people made wealth. Over the last, I don't know how many years, uh, 40 years, since 1978, the average American workers' wages have gone up by around 11.2%. 
But the average CEO salary has gone up by almost 1,000%. Today, the top CEOs on Wall Street in the top 350 companies earn an average of $15.6 million a year. And on average, they make 271 times more than their average worker in their company. So in other words, they're saying, I am worth nearly 300 of you with what I do and what I bring to this enterprise. Is it any wonder that when people saw numbers like this, saw lifestyles like this, what they said is, that's where the action is. It's what I want to do. And why I remember this movie is because Michael Douglas playing Gordon Gecko. I don't know how that got past the studio filters, but they named the main character Gordon Gecko. And this guy, he, he delivered an iconic speech at a shareholders meeting where he said in his flourish at the end with this finish, he said, greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. What he was saying is greed is the most honest and pure motivator for business. And if you leverage it, you can win. And the thing is, back in 1987, there was still this thing called shame that people felt. You know, like, like they were like, whoa, that's kind of awkward and a little much, you know? And people were a little shocked, and it sent ripples. Even though it was a fictional movie, the boldness and the conviction with which he declared greed to be a virtue and not a sin was so shocking. And one older generation went, oh, my Lord, the world is going to hell. And the younger generation went, right on. Finally, someone's speaking the truth. Let's stop beating around the bush. And this movie and that statement shaped an entire generation of people. I have friends whose lives took very different turns because of that, and it still left a mark on me. I'm like, I can't believe what he just said. Now, I'm aware it's a movie, but I think movies in the last 50 years have shaped American life more than books and thinkers and philosophers. Wouldn't you agree? It's amazing that you go to an international gathering of young people and you tell everyone, hey, everyone huddled by your nationality, come up with a song that symbolizes your culture and sing it for us. And every other culture has a folk song, something that re- reminds them of their history, their heritage, and they come up with it right away. The American groups always sit around for an hour going, we don't have a song. And one, one writer said he did something like that, and the only song they could come up with was the old Coca-Cola jingle. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Keep it company. I, I mean, we're shaped by commercials and movies. We don't really have much more of a shaping influence in our culture today. So Gordon Gecko tells us that greed is a good thing, that if you harness it, that horse will take you to wonderful places. Jesus, on the other hand, has a very different view. And he said to them, watch out. That exclamation point was meant to wake up the sleepy ones He's saying, you have to hear this because it will cost you a great deal if you miss it. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That's important. Because Gordon Gecko's brand of greed is not the only kind there is. There are quiet forms of greed that you would never spot as greed even in yourself. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I don't think Jesus could have said it more clearly What he's saying is that greed describes a heart that finds 
the essence of its life, its great satisfaction and fulfillment in the accumulation of possessions. Now, a lot of people have written on this topic, and I agree with ones who say that the heart of greed in terms of the seven deadly sins is not that it delights in the possessions themselves, but in the having of them. Years ago, I preached about the Sultan of Brunei's car collection. He has a car collection that takes warehouses to store. When he buys a Ferrari that he likes, he buys every color because he can't make up his mind. So he has something like 3,500 exotic cars, each one worth at the very least $100,000. And they say that in this factory, many of them, since they were delivered, were never even turned over or started once. And they are rusting and rotting away and have to be basically shipped off to the junkyard without ever being enjoyed. That's the heart of greed, is that I just like to own the cars. I don't drive them. I don't enjoy them. I don't even look at them. I build buildings to store them out of the public view. I like to just have one of those cars he's not using. Just one. Give me the worst one in your collection. I will enjoy the living daylights out of that car. And the heart of greed is that the the cars themselves are not the joy. It's the having them. The heart of greed loves to get and to hold. That's its joy. It's an excessive love of money and the things that money represent to that person. It's important to remember throughout the rest of this series that the seven deadly sins were not a list born in a focus group or in a boardroom as as men and women gathered around to brainstorm, hey, what would be like the seven deadly sins? That's not how this list was formed. It was shaped this way. Bunch of men and women went off to the desert and they gave up everything in their lives to pursue one single-minded goal. We want to be as close to God as is humanly possible. No cost is too great. Anything it takes, we are going to pursue God with all our hearts. But after a while, they realized we can't do this alone. So they gathered in communities, and they also pursued community with one another. So the desert fathers and mothers, these early pilgrims into the desert, what they were chasing was communion with God and community with other people. That's what church remains all about. It's why we gather is we're seeking a connection with God and we're seeking a connection with one another and with the people around us. So communion and community were the goals. And what they found as they reflected on their own hearts is there are seven things in us that keep getting in the way of communion and community. They get in the way of my, my deepening and my love for God and they get in the way of trying to do life with other people. And these seven things formed a list that they called the seven deadly sins, not because they were the worst things a person could do, but because they were killers of communion and killers of community. This list has stood the test of time. And today we're going we're to explore greed and how it destroys some important things that God wants to build in our lives. The first thing that greed destroys is contentment. I don't think greed is just the absence of contentment. I think it actually works to destroy any shred of contentment that's left. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, what he assumes is no human being is content gaining nothing. That's not how God made us. We were made for more, and there's an appetite for more, Nobody likes when everything never changes and just gets worse and worse. Upgrading, 
moving on, progress is sown into the human spirit. But the way we pursue gain is very important. And he says, if you want great gain, don't just get more stuff. Learn the magical power, the supernatural power of godliness with contentment. Here's why. Here's his argument. We brought nothing into the world. Did anyone bring anything? Other than if you're a twin, you brought a friend. But (laughs) we don't bring anything in and we take nothing out of the world. So if we have food, and you know the old saying, you never see a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse, right? I mean, the ancient world, they believed that in the afterlife you could use physical goods carried over. So they would kill servants and animals and bury the kings and noblemen with lots of wealth so they could use it in the next life. That doesn't really work, though. We don't bring anything in. We don't carry anything out. So this idea of contentment is built around the acknowledgement that every possession in human life is temporary. I don't think people really understand that. Everything you own is temporary. None of it will exit with you. And in many, many cases, when you take all that accumulated stash and you give it to someone else, that often becomes more of a burden and a curse than a gift. Unearned wealth can really corrupt a human heart. That's why I think we ought to be very careful about this idea of inheritance. So at the heart of contentment is the ability to grasp a concept, a word called enough. I think enough is one of the slipperiest words in the English language. You know, you you want to say to the person, look, that's enough. Says you, I'm not done yet. You've played enough. You've watched enough. Yeah, you think so, but I got another couple hours in me. If I wanted to, if you left me alone, I could go all day, all night. My capacity is unbelievable. So what's enough to one isn't enough to another. That makes for most of the arguments in families, doesn't it? Especially because parents say to you guys, don't we, all the time, I know how annoying it is because I was annoyed by my parents. That's enough! No, it's not. It's not even close to enough. It's slippery because it's subjective at some level. Back in 1995, I I bought a book called Material World. It's a coffee table photo book, and it was a fascinating premise. A photographer named Peter Menzel gathered a team of 16 um, photographers, some of the best in the world, and they were dispatched to 30 different countries not at the same time, 16 and 30. I mean, they went to two countries over the year. They lived for a week in the home of someone who was statistically average for that country. A whole week in that home as their guest. And at the end of the week, he helped carry, the photographer would help carry all their earthly possessions outside in front of the house and line them up and display them. And then he would photograph the family surrounded by every earthly possession they owned. Fascinating. When you do it across 30 cultures with statistically average families, you get a really interesting picture of what enough looks like in different places in the world. I want to show you some of those photos. I gave the book away to a a pastor from Africa, and he was cracking up when he first saw the book. He's He's like, I don't think the American picture does justice to American life, but here are some pictures. Here is Cuba. Here's Mali. 
That's crazy to me. Those people on the roof, that's everything they own. Here's Japan. Here's Soweto, South Africa, 1995. Kuwait. In Kuwait, the average family has four cars and a couch that could seat our whole church. Do you see that sectional right there? That's insane. There's, that's an average family. That's a 4,850-square-foot house, by the way. So that's average in Kuwait. Here's Western Samoa. And here's the U.S. of A. And as I'm flipping through this book, I kept thinking, I wonder what my family's photo would look I think they might need a drone for ours because we got a lot of stuff, man. We have a lot of stuff. And when I think about the picture that you would have to take of my family and our earthly possessions, this word enough kind of rings out in my head as I don't think I understand that word at all. The running joke in my family is I am addicted to gingham shirts. If you, you guys, I'm the one person who stands in front of the whole church all the time. You get to see what I wear. I have a certain pattern to my clothing. If it's gingham, I have every color of the rainbow. I have the gingham rainbow. I don't know what it is about that checkered pattern that I'm so fond of, but I just can't seem to get enough. I've only got one torso, and I've got like 15 gingham shirts. It makes no sense. It's very hard to justify, but still somewhere in my distorted heart, it feels like enough. And on some days, it feels like not enough. The line between excess and enough is very hard to find. Because one man's need is another man's want. I took my family on a trip saying things in my heart like, I really need this vacation right now. And at some level, in my context, in my life, on my story, that felt true to me. I really felt like I needed that vacation. But also, I'm not sure I could argue that I absolutely needed it. It felt like a need, but I think others could easily redefine it as a want. I think that's the power of living in community is that this line is very slippery and if I'm the only arbiter of where that line exists, I can find myself very lost along the way. But if I had a group of people I trusted who I knew loved me, did not judge me, and they would courageously say things when they felt like I had crossed a line, I think I could find that line a little easier. One author wrote in his book on the seven deadly sins, I'll bet you that I cannot discern when I've crossed that line myself, but you could spot it real fast when I've done it. You could spot it in my life. And that doesn't mean everyone's right, but in community, I have lots of mirrors held up to me so I can at least examine myself. Because here's how most people decide what they will consume and what they will have. They, they obey the law of supply and demand. They buy whatever they're able to afford, so their, their amount of money determines the amount of living and consuming that they do. That's why I do as much as I'm able with my money, and I can't do more, and I'm hesitant to do less, because I don't want to go there. I want to go there on vacation. And because I can afford there, but not there, I settle on Mexico because I can't get to Maui. But I don't want to go to Minneapolis. Do you see what I did there? Three M's. So I could go to Minneapolis, afford that in my sleep, 
I could stretch a little, go to Mexico. Or I could dream about Maui and pay for it for the rest of my adult life. Which is it going to be? And so I'm having trouble figuring out when I've crossed that line. Rather than thinking about what do I want and what do I need, what I find as a more helpful guide is what do I have and what do I actually use? That's a good starting point. It's not perfect, but I think it's a little clearer and more objective to begin there. What do I have and what do I actually use? I think that if the photographer lived at my house and my wife and I and our kids had to lug out every worldly possession, just the act of carrying all your stuff out would make you feel like, oh, what is our problem? Why do I have to move all of this stuff? I mean, look at this family right here. Okay, The, the family in Mali, it took them like 35 seconds to take all their stuff out. I think they have more people than stuff in that family. Imagine if this was your job right here. Look at this one. Move all that stuff out of your house. What a pain. And if you had to move all that stuff out, it would become very clear to you, we have so much that we don't really need. I don't think we understand the full concept of the word enough. In her book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung, my favorite author on this subject, writes, the point is not to live on crusts of bread with bare walls and threadbare clothes. So I know some of us are protesting, well, where's the line then? What are you saying, that I can only eat bread and salting crackers and water, maybe a piece of cheese once in a while? What are you saying to me? We're not saying the point is to to pursue asceticism and torture yourself and act like you like it. But the point is that a fully human life is lived in a way free from being enslaved to our stuff. So it's important that we monitor just how much does our stuff own us versus we own our stuff. Are you developing the ability to discern when enough is actually enough? I don't have a slide for it. I wasn't even going to mention it. But James Ogilvie wrote a book on the seven deadly sins. And what he says is, I'm paraphrasing here, but greed is like a force multiplier. It takes all other legitimate things and converts them, corrupts them into a sin. It turns leisure into sloth. It turns love into lust. It turns honor into pride. It turns righteous indignation into wrath. It turns admiration into envy. Greed is a force multiplier, and when you don't know what enough is, there are no boundaries anymore for you. It's really hard to know how angry is angry enough, how jealous is jealous enough, how full is full enough, how vain is vain enough. And after a while, you realize enough doesn't mean anything to me anymore. We let market forces And checkbook balances determine what enough looks like. There is no inner voice governing the concept of enough anymore. So contentment, while maintaining godliness, is great gain. Greed also destroys dependence. The key word here is trust. The reason contentment is difficult is because it has no cushion. Contentment says, I have what I need right in this moment. And there's a kind of comfort and peace in knowing that, but most of us don't just live right in this moment. We're already thinking about the next moment, and the worry is, I'm good now, but what about tomorrow? 
I could keep enjoying myself, doing nothing, watching Netflix, playing a game, whatever, because I know I have nothing this afternoon, but tomorrow I might be busy. So yes, maybe 20 hours is excessive, but I have 20 hours free today. I don't know about tomorrow. So I want to hoard what I can get now because I can't be guaranteed that I will be given anything the next day. Ultimately, contentment is hard because it focuses on what I have now and acknowledging it's enough. I'm still breathing. I'm here. I'm, I'm alive. My heart beats. And God has been faithful to provide what is needed for this moment. But what about tomorrow? If you've ever, ever experienced hardship, that makes it even harder to learn this thing called faith for tomorrow and contentment for today. The writer of Hebrews wrote, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. But here is the reason why. It's because God has said he will never leave us nor forsake us. What we want from God is assurance that he will provide everything. Instead, what God promises is not, I will give you everything your heart desires. He always says this and this only. I will never leave you. The the promise is not for provision. It's always for presence and for peace. Whatever you go through, I will never let it be too much for you. It won't unravel you if you trust me. But you will never go through any of it alone. Some of the most shaping and strengthening events in our lives are the ones that take things away from us, not the things that add to our lives. Some of my most important life lessons were learned when something was taken away from me, and I had to learn that I could survive as long as God was with me. But when I had all those things and God felt far away, I did not feel the peace or the presence or the power of God. If you've ever had financial hardship, if you've ever lived in poverty, really tasted what that felt like, the helplessness, the weakness of it all. It's very easy to say to yourself, I will never feel this way again. And that's normal. That's natural. You're supposed to feel that way. We're not supposed to welcome poverty and say that it was a wonderful feeling to have nothing, to be constantly hungry and powerless It's human to want to be uplifted out of the ashes of suffering. But in that moment, there's a fork in the road. Yes, you should not want to go taste that bitterness again. But who will you trust to keep you from having to go back there? The fork in the road is this. You can choose fundamentally to trust God to secure your tomorrow, or you can choose fundamentally to say you trust God, but really trust yourself and everything you're putting down to make sure that you and your family are going to be safe. God allows hardship not just to toughen us, but to breed in our hearts a growing dependence on him. To say, at least, though this struggle would happen, whether I was a Buddhist, an atheist, or whatever, at the very least, I know that there is a God, and I can cry out to you. Not like a man screaming into a hurricane, What is going on? But as though I'm speaking to a person who exists. The fact that I know you're hearing this and I can shout out this prayer in my hardship, that is enough for me right now. And without you, God, I would just be whistling in the wind. I would just be screaming at the hurricane and would do no good. 
You are God, and you will do in response to my cry whatever seems best to you. But I'm thankful that I know you, and I can shout out to you, help me, I cannot take it anymore. When we decide that that's not going to work, and we take matters into our own hands, we're on very shaky ground. Let me give you a last thing. Greed destroys generosity. Jesus said, do not be, he's talking to his disciples now, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me just go through this very quickly. He knew that the disciples would have to pay a very high price to follow him in the years to come. They would never be rich. They would always be called to sacrifice for the sake of others. And they would never be able to walk through a village and not see the poor. It would be their life's work to care for those who didn't know God and had less than they did. And that because they had almost invariably had experiences of hardship in the past, that is scary. It's scary to think, not only will I have to depend on God every day, I'm going to have to bleed resources for the sake of others. I will have to be generous and sacrificial. And that creates fear, and God says, don't be afraid. And the reason he tells us not to be afraid is because he is going to give us the whole kingdom. Here's another way of looking at it. I'm I'm going to try to save a little time here. I think the right way to think about earthly life is that it's one long 60-year currency exchange. When I travel, one of the first things I used to do, I don't do it anymore because credit cards are everywhere now, but I used to take a wad of U.S. cash. I would go to the Forex, the foreign exchange at the airport, and I'd convert the currency from my land into the currency of this land because nobody in China wants me to pay with U.S. dollars. That's offensive, presumptuous, and dumb. And so my thing is, this currency which made me wealthy at home is useless abroad. In order to have it be of value, I've got to convert it into a currency that makes sense where I am. And that's the same thing Jesus is saying here. There's no, nothing wrong with wanting to accumulate treasure. The problem is most people foolishly accumulate treasure they'll never be able to keep. It will never have eternal value. Everything that you accumulate, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's all going to go to someone else who didn't work for it. You bleed your whole life to amass this huge chest of acorns and another squirrel is going to eat all those nuts. What is the point of that? And then at the end, he goes, life is so meaningless. But what if there was a better way? The writer of Ecclesiastes did not know Jesus in the way that we know Jesus. And Jesus says to us, you can spend your earthly life taking all of that earthly treasure which moths will destroy, and you can turn it into treasure you cannot. You take treasure you cannot keep and convert it to treasure you cannot lose. The key to stewardship is to go from owning something to managing it for someone else. In other words, ownership says that everything I have is mine. Stewardship, oh, what have I done? Stewardship says everything I have is thine. I was going to say yours, but yours does not rhyme with mine. This will make it more memorable for you. 
The key to learning generosity is to acknowledge truly in my heart that ownership is an illusion and a foolishness because I can't own anything beyond this temporary lease that I have on life. But I can hold on to those treasures forever. If I spend my life converting what is useless there to something that will never fade away. I think that the great betrayal of the prodigal son is that he took money from his father and used it in a way that totally dishonored his father's character and heart. He got the money from his dad and never acknowledged how his dad might want him to use it. I really believe that that's the way money is spent so often in the American church. I'm not talking about just the church's money. I'm talking about our own money because we still operate under this idea that, well, yeah, but that's my money. It's mine. And I want to acknowledge, we take nothing away from you. You worked hard, probably harder than most. And you made good choices and you made sacrifices. It is something you've earned. But until you acknowledge that it's all God's, you will never really have the right Christian relationship with money. And in that area of your life, there will not be lasting peace. There will be a lot of strife, a lot of worry, a lot of fear wrapped into the way you relate to money. So I've been trying to end these messages in this series with some practical advice. This is where, if you've been sleeping, most people wake up because it's something you could actually do. So if your friend or your neighbor is, is catching some Z's, you might want to go, hey, you missed the boring part, but wake up now. This is something you could actually do. The first practical response is audit your relationship with money. You know what an audit is? It is a, an alien abduction level probe of something. It's a cavity search. It's really going after what's going on in here. No one likes getting audited, but it reveals everything that is hiding. Here's a thought experiment for you. Horrible thought experiment, violating. But imagine this. Imagine if someone who didn't know you at all were invited to spend 24 hours unrestricted in your house, just wandering around, opening drawers, digging through everything, just trying to figure out like an anthropologist or an archaeologist, who are these people who live in this domicile? Whenever I watch The Walking Dead or something, and just walk into a house, I think a family used to live there, and they're looking for canned food or weapons, and we're like, I wouldn't mind just walking through going, who were these people? What was their story? What would your house, without any narration, just your stuff, if, if that person could go anywhere they wanted, what picture would they, would they develop? of what matters to you, what kind of person you are. <coughs> what if they could go through your finances unimpeded? Here are all my passwords. Here are all my account numbers. Here's every transaction. What do you see when you look at me? And I want to recommend that it's not just a thought experiment, but here's something that I actually have done in the past. Um, I've walked through my house physically, room by room, and try to gain a sense of the story. What does this room tell you about the people? For a while, I kept walking to my family and going, this family really likes whitewater rafting. Because <laughs> there were two giant pictures of rafting. And then I'm just, and I, as I looked around, I realized this family really likes looking at screens. There's screens everywhere. And so on and so forth. Would it reveal what you want it to reveal, what you believe is really there? 
in you. Here's another practical response. Simplify. Some of you are already on this kick now. Right on. Keep at it. Consider a radical simplifying of your life. A purging that is built around the distinction between what I have and what I actually use. If you want to do a big purge, I would recommend the Marie Kondo method. I don't get any commission from the sale of her books, but I think she's onto something. I don't agree with the bowing to your house and that weirdness. My house never bows back to me. It's very disrespectful. But I really think that it makes a lot of sense to say, why do I own this? And if I'm going to keep it, I want to keep it on purpose. Because what I have but don't use, someone else could. I don't think it's a good idea to purge to make room for new purchases. That's what some people end up doing. What are we going to put there? How about nothing? Isn't that why you did it in the first place? The idea of a purge is to reframe your relationship to stuff and to money. It's not to get new stuff and upgrade everything. And if you've ever done a purge like this, it really works. Let me give you another simplify practical thing is practice a consumerism Sabbath. Do you know that we are exposed to over 3,000 ads or media messages every day trying to influence the choices and the way we value things? And do you know that the, the, the companies in this country alone spend $224 billion a year creating those advertisements? That's a lot of money spent trying to get you to like things you didn't know you liked. And what a lot of people say when they go on personal retreats or mission trips is one of the things that shocks them when they come home is they spent a week completely blind to media messages, and when they get back to their home airport, they realize how, what an onslaught, how overwhelming our sight lines are. Our ears are always filled with someone telling us, do this, buy this, get that. You know, when you see these dystopian science fiction movies where there's like, it looks like Times Square everywhere and there's neon lights and all, it just seems so overwhelming. Our world is very close to that already. You don't realize how noisy the world is with people trying to tell you you need this or want this until you shut it off for a little while. So consider a defined period, maybe one month, maybe six months, where you and your family make a covenant, no new purchases except for gasoline and food and the basics of survival. For this period, we will not engage in consumerism. We won't buy anything we don't need. We won't go window shopping to ease the pain. We won't browse the internet or research the next purchase. We will cut clean from consumerism for a defined period and see what the purging of our hearts and our minds also does to our relationship with things. Let me give you one last thing. Examine your patterns of giving and make up your mind that you want the way that you give not just to reflect your heart, but to contribute to the way that your heart grows for the Lord. I think it begins with asking the question, who is worthy of all that you can give and do? And I'm so grateful that the team had us sing that new song this morning, who is worthy? He is worthy. But it also depends on asking the question, why has God given me more than I need? The truth is, most of us 
probably all of us in this room have more than we actually need to stay alive. In some cases, we have way more than what's needed to stay alive. And the question to ask is, why? Why is it that I have more? I know at one level the answer is because I studied harder or I work harder. I put in more hours. I made good investments. I didn't just have this handed to me. I did things and I produced this. I actually earned it, which is why, and that's true, it's so easy then for that reason to believe it's mine. It's mine because my efforts produced this result. But what if along the way, even though you worked hard, you could acknowledge, I worked hard because God made me able to do so. And he hasn't just bought my stuff, he's bought me. I myself am owned. And if I myself am owned, is not everything entrusted to my hands also owned by one who is greater than I am? I would encourage you to consider whether your giving reflects what you think of God and how you want to be as a person. I can tell you that growing up until I got to to college, I faithfully gave $52 a year to the church of a very rich man's money. Every week, my parents gave me a dollar, and I delivered that dollar like a paper boy into the offering plate. Thanks, Mom, Dad. Here Here you go, God. And that amounted to a pittance of what my dad had. But it was worth $52 more to my dad than it was worth to me because it wasn't mine. And then I got to college and my parents stopped underwriting my life. And suddenly all the money was mine and I found I was really stingy. It was much harder to give my money than my parents' money. Teenagers, do you know, do you remember how, maybe, maybe not all of your families work this way, but in my, my family, our kids have to pay for their own gas. We provide the car, it will sit in the driver unless you buy gas. And when, that didn't always used to be the case. Before the kids earned money, we would provide the gas and the car, and they would drive like, I'm going to drop my friend off in Wisconsin and then go to Minnesota and come back. No problem. But now that they buy their own gas, it's kind of like, maybe there's a wiser way to do this. Because it feels different when it costs you. But that cost has an effect on your heart. Every time you intentionally pay the cost, it's a declaration of worth. I wouldn't pick up just anyone from over there, but it's you. Because I want to spend time with you. I will drive 45 minutes and buy that gas because I want to be with you. You're worth it to me. Every intentional act of giving and sacrifice is a declaration of worth. Every single one. And because we're not infinite, we're making choices against and for things every day. You can give to a lot of things, but let me encourage you as we close to really think about your giving to God through the church. This is the awkward time for me because... Everyone assumes the church only wants your money. But here's why I think it matters for our faith to give to the church. Because when I give to a charity or a cause on my own, I'm giving out of my heart, my conviction, my mind. 
But when we give to the church, this is money we steward together. It's no longer one person deciding anything. It's a community learning how to hear the will of God and obey him as a, as a community. And I think that's beautiful, and I think that's important. That this is the one place that when we give, we give together, and we spend it and invest it in his kingdom together. It's how we learn as a group what it looks like to do this in our own homes. Maybe you're wondering if the way that the church manages the money can be trusted. I wholeheartedly invite you to get involved. We want your voice. We want your input. We want people praying and speaking up and telling us together, this is what the Lord is putting on our hearts. This is how our money needs to be invested. It's where it needs to go. If how it's spent matters to you, I urge you, I invite you to get involved. Step into leadership. Help us aim that collective stewardship in the right things for the glory of God and for the real help of people who need it. Does your giving reflect who you want to be and what you really think of God? I want to invite you to just bow with me now. We're going we're gonna to close out. and uh, <clears throat> I don't know how all of this strikes you. I've, I hope I've succeeded in, in that I really did not want this message to come across as judging or rebuking. I didn't want the fruit of the sermon to be just guilt. But a real sober pause in your life to think about the relationship that you have with money and with material things. Because if you have the wrong relationship with those things, Paul writes to Timothy that many who have fallen in love with money wrongly have lost their faith and been pierced with many kinds of grief. preach this in the heart of wanting our church together to have the right relationship with money so that we can be free, not in bondage. I hope when I die I could be like John Wesley, nearly penniless. Kids, the inheritance you'll get from me and mom is not our money that we did not invest, but our hearts that we poured out into your lives. I hope that the inheritance we give you is that you know how to live in this world and live for Jesus. That somehow you've gained the ability to take care of yourself and the loved ones around you and to honor the Lord. The money God's put in our hands belongs to this generation, this moment, this lifetime. And I want to give it to Jesus as much as I can for his use. Hold me accountable to that. And I want to challenge you. Let's have the same heart about our money. Would you take a moment to respond to the Lord in your own words and just pray a prayer response. Want to commit to one of these practical things? Make a commitment verbally to God now. I'm going to do this, Lord. Help me. Make that commitment right now. Let's pray. 
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.